Oh, dear God, that we might live for Christ alone. That he might fill our thoughts and our heart and find expression in what we say and what we do and what we desire. Father, as we have observed you so casually in our lifetime, we have seen a consistency in you. You have a plan, dear God, and you're working that plan out moment by moment, day by day. You've been doing that since the very beginning of time. And Lord, we can trust you and depend on you and you alone. What an example you've set for us. That we might be a people of purpose. That we might be a people who have our focus set on you and bringing a smile to your face and pleasure to you. And in that, Lord, to find our joy and our happiness. But, Lord, that's not how it always works. There are times, dear God, when that focus is broken. There are times when we allow other things to dominate our heart and our mind. There are times, Lord, when we know that domination by other things is not good for us and not a blessing to others, and yet we persevere, and I pray that you would help us to come to terms with that in our own life and that we would confess before you that we need your help every day, that we would ask you, dear God, to forgive us and to help us start anew. I pray that for us individually and corporately, Lord. And I pray that for your children here and all around the world. That we would be known as a people who are seeking to follow you and to let Jesus be the Lord of our life. Week after week when we come together, Father, there are all kinds of news events, things that are disconcerting and troubling to us things that remind us that we live in a broken world. You have blessed our nation, Father, beyond imagination. We're not the first country or the first civilization that's been blessed, but it's been our turn, and throughout our whole lifetime, we've seen that blessing unfold. The blessing's tarnished now, Lord. We as a people have lost our innocence. We entertain ourselves with things that are degrading. We spend our time doing things that are not fruitful. You've created a beautiful world for us and a beautiful example in Jesus. And I pray, dear God, that revival might strike the hearts of Americans all across this country that we might awaken to the mess we've got on our hands and realize that you're the only solution. And I pray that it might start right here, that we might be humbled before you and that we might live for you and that we might encourage others to do the same. I pray your blessing, Father, on those that you have allowed to be our leaders not just in our capital, but in the capitals of each state and our communities and the business world 
those in education and medicine and others who lead our nation. And I pray, dear God, that we would change some of the paths that we've been following and that we'd allow the Bible to dictate to us how to live our lives and that we would trust you and that we would invite you back into our country. I thank you, dear God, for all the beautiful things that are happening that people are doing. I thank you for the way people stop and share themselves and their wealth and their abilities with other people. And I pray, dear God, that we might continue to do that and that we would be an example to others. Father, there are a lot of our folks who are in uniform today, and I ask your blessing on them. I thank you for those that are willing to give of their time and possibly their life to be surrogates for each one of us and to preserve the country and the freedom that we have. I pray for our church, Lord. I pray that we might grow individually. And I pray that the renewal in our church would take place on a daily basis. And I pray that each one of us might grow closer to you, might get to know you more intimately. And I pray, dear God, that you would be the very focus of our life. Thank you for the opportunity you give us to be together today. Thank you for the hymns, and thank you, dear God, for the prayers, and the opportunity to have our focus shifted from this world and us to where it really belongs, to you. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me and turn to Philippians, the first chapter. We're going to start our study with the 12th verse. Philippians 1, starting with 12 and studying through the 20th verse. Philippians, the first chapter, starting with the 12th verse. <clears throat> when you're ready, if you would, look up. Keep your finger in your Bible. And let's not do this by ourselves, folks. Let's get some help. Let's pray together. Father, you decided to record your thoughts in your heart for us. You selected people in ages past and gave them what we now have as our Bible. It's amazing, Lord, from a human perspective that there's such continuity over so many hundreds and thousands of years. I thank you for the word that's delivered to us today. And I pray it might leap off the page into our hearts and that it might renew our minds. And I pray, dear God, that you would help us benefit from this study, that it might influence the way we live our lives. So, Father, I ask you to bless us as we come to your word and for you to open it through the power of your Holy Spirit for us. And I ask it, dear God, in Jesus' name. 
Amen. A member of our church was sharing with me an event in their life. And I had today's sermon in my mind as they were doing that. And after they shared with me, I asked permission to use it from the pulpit today. This person told me that their spouse, whom they love very much, had cancer. And for a prolonged period of time, struggled with that cancer. They went on to tell me that there came a point where they talked to the doctor who was caring for them and asked if it would be possible for them to go on a prolonged vacation. The doctor said yes. So they left our state and went several states away for this prolonged vacation. While they were on vacation, they made a commitment. And the commitment was three or four days in advance. About the same time they made that commitment, the spouse who was sick with cancer got exceedingly worse, and they became aware they needed to get back to Lake Oconee. But made the decision to keep their commitment and stayed for that additional three or four days. Then they got in the car and they drove toward home and had to spend the night on the way in a motel. And when they got back to Lake Oconee, the next morning, the spouse who was struggling with the cancer had to be readmitted to the hospital. And within just a very short period of time, the spouse died. What caught my attention as we were talking, and that's a story that a lot of us could tell similar kind of events, but what really caught my attention is with a great deal of wisdom and a great deal of sensitivity, the member of our church said to me that at a later date, when looking back on those events, could see the hand of God at work. And this is the way it was described to me. The doctor probably knew there wasn't anything else he could do, but agreed to them going on vacation so they could have some time together. That's the providence of God reaching into a human situation. While on vacation, when the loving spouse became seriously ill, and they decided to not come home immediately, but to wait three or four days. In retrospect, those were precious days. A time to talk. A time to share, only like a husband and wife can do. The providence of God. They got in a car and started driving south, and as they drove south and had to spend the night, in retrospect, the spouse said, can you imagine what would have happened if my loved one, I didn't do that. <laughs> I sure hope that wasn't a signal. <laughs> that if the loved one had gotten sick on the road coming home, 
and had to go to an unfamiliar emergency room and be checked into a hospital where they wouldn't know any of the medical staff, how bad that would have been. But God didn't let that happen. He let them return home, and the next day was the onset of the difficulty. And then my friend said, the providence of God. Their loved one went to a hospital that they'd been in with a medical staff that they knew and doctors and nurses surrounding them who loved them and that they had loved. And they were cared for. God is involved in every aspect of our life. So very often when good things or difficult things happen, we don't stop and look back. And we don't identify when God's hand is involved and when he's loving us and holding us and taking care of us. And in our society, what we do is we get back up and we go charging ahead trying to accomplish something. And oftentimes we miss some of the most beautiful times in life. Our passage today talks about the providence of God, and it does it in a fascinating way. The more I studied this passage, the more I saw in the passage. First, I saw a preacher named Paul sharing some of himself and some of the experiences that he's had. But always looking at it through the eyes of God and how God was involved. I want to read the passage to you. It comes from Philippians, the first chapter, starting with the 12th verse. And I'm going to read through the 20th verse. And listen very carefully, for God is about to speak to us. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provisions of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectations and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You know, there are a lot of passages that you can read, and, and there's one central theme, and you, 
identify that central theme and you start to feed on that. And there's certainly a central theme here, and that is the providence of God. The way I use the term providence is very simple. It means a divine intervention in our life. There are those who would say God has created us and wound us up like a clock and set us out there and and the clock's ticking down and he has nothing to do with us. That's not what our Bible teaches. What our Bible teaches is that providentially he's involved in every aspect of our life. The Westminster Divines in our confessional reading hundreds of years ago could also say God works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving, and governing all of his creatures. God's involved in our life. And as you start to look for the hand of God, you begin to see it. I want you to remember that the people in Philippi had become Christians through the ministry of Paul. He had visited with them. He had shared Jesus with them. They had accepted Christ, and then he moved on. And several years, three or four had passed. They didn't have communications like we have today. So every now and then, by someone coming through their town and through their church, they might hear something about Paul, but they really didn't know much of what was going on. You and I can turn into the Acts, the history book of the New Testament, and we can read and we can see what Paul was doing. And we know that he ultimately, when he finished his third missionary journey, was told by God what was going to happen when he went back to Jerusalem, and that's precisely what happened. He went back, and he was accused of a crime he didn't commit. He was unlawfully arrested and held for trial. He went through a series of trials the whole time under arrest, much of the time literally chained to a Roman centurion. He called out to the Romans and said, I'm a Roman citizen. And he made an appeal that he might appear before the emperor of the Roman Empire. That would be like us asking for an audience with the president of our country. But in the Roman Empire, that was possible. Well, the people in Philippi surely were catching pieces of that as it unfolded over a period of time, but they didn't know in any detail what was going on. When he finally got off a ship that was shipwrecked in the Mediterranean and got to Rome, he was under house arrest and literally chained to a guard. And now he writes this letter. And he starts to talk to the Philippians and say, let me tell you what's been going on. If you look at verses 12 through 14, you see how the providence of God has just unfolded in prison. He's been in prison and he's waiting trial. And the verses say to us, now I want you to know, he's saying to the Philippians, I want you to understand what I'm about to say, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My goodness, when I look at the hard times in my life, I wonder how often I could say, you know how this all really worked out? It worked out for the progress of the gospel. Usually, aren't we so consumed by the things that challenge us that we forget to be a witness? Doesn't that happen to us? 
And what Paul is saying, while I was in prison, God used it providentially to bless other people. He talks about the guards who were around him and the one that he was chained to. They were unique guards because they were the ones who guarded the emperor. They're the ones who took care of things in the capital to ensure stability of the government. And one of those guards was assigned to Paul, and he was assigned to hold on to Paul and not let him get away. And Paul is able to say to the people in Philippi, you know that guard who was with me, chained to me? He watched the way I lived. He watched my behavior from way up close. And he and others who came in contact with me saw the gospel working out in my life, saw me trusting God, saw me being single-minded about how I was going to live my life, not knowing how long my life would be. I think in that very thought, there are a couple of things that just leap off the page at me. One, the Praetorian guards were hard-shelled, committed, single-minded people who had competed to get into the position they were in and who lived to satisfy the emperor. You might call them hard shell. People you would never expect would accept the gospel or come to know Christ. You have some people like that in your life? You have some people that you look at and just say, well, you know, there's no hope for that person. I can't get through to them. So you kind of scratch them off your list and you go to somebody who might be easier. I've learned an interesting thing. I've learned that the hard shells often come to faith much easier. They're just waiting for somebody to come along like Paul or like you and myself and share Jesus with them. So I encourage you, if you have somebody like that in your life, revisit those folks. Revisit the whole idea of you being used by God to touch their life, to see them accept Jesus. He also said that other people, lots of other people, observed what was happening to him in his imprisonment and heard the gospel as a result. You know, I sat in my study and I thought about the times in my life when I didn't show a very good example I know you have never had that experience, but times when, you know, I spoke out and shouldn't have and somebody saw me or heard me and and I didn't set a good example. But what Paul did with all of the problems, he doesn't write to the Philippians and say, woe is me. He doesn't write to them and say, let me tell you about all the bad things that have been happening to me. And he had a lot of bad things happen to him. Instead, he writes a word of encouragement. And in that imprisonment, in the uncertainty of what his tomorrow looked like, his focus was in sharing Jesus. See, I think that comes as a tremendous encouragement to us. To not just live for ourselves and not to turn inward and and to just think about woe is me, but to think how might I be available to God? Wherever I am, whatever I'm experiencing. 
And folks, that's a real possibility because that's what Paul experienced. And he was a guy just like we are guys and gals. And under the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have that kind of peace and that kind of experience. I challenge you, look at your own life and ask yourself, what do I do when things get tough? What do I do when things don't go the way I want? How do I respond and how do I behave? And am I single-minded about letting the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ just ooze out of me and touch somebody else? If you look down at 15 through 18, you see a fascinating statement about how the providence of God worked in the preaching of the gospel. Paul is able to say, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. What he's doing is he's looking at all those who are preaching. You know, the church in Rome was actually established before Paul ever got to Rome. And there were some people who were the leaders of that church. We might call them ruling elders or deacons or preachers, but there were people who were in leadership in that church. And then Paul comes to town, and don't you imagine he was the focus of a lot of attention? I mean, here is the number one evangelist in the history of the Christian church, and he's imprisoned in their own town. And he says, as he looks around at those who are preaching the gospel, some of those who are preaching the gospel are doing it out of envy and strife, and others are doing it out of goodwill. I want you to notice he didn't say there was false doctrine. He didn't say they weren't preaching the gospel. He said, here are two groups of people in the Christian church who are, in fact, teaching and preaching the truth. The issue isn't what they're delivering. The issue is what's in their hearts. And what he's saying is, we have a God who can take that which is delivered in truth from somebody who does not have a pure heart, and he can use that, and often does. I have met people who have come to know Jesus Christ through some of the most unlikely people. Some people that you would say, well, I wouldn't want to read their material, or I wouldn't want to watch them on a screen, or go to one of their services. And yet God has used the truth that has come out of their mouths to change the hearts of people. That is the providence of God in preaching. He is in control of that. But Paul very accurately says some of those people are doing it out of envy. Some of those people are doing it out of strife. What he's really saying is that original sins kicked in for some of those folks, and they're thinking about themselves and not about the cause that they've been recruited by God to deliver. Instead, what they're doing is they're starting to compete with Paul. And they're looking at Paul and thinking, he's front stage and I'm not front stage anymore. And they even did things to detract from his ministry because they were looking out for number one. Strife. When that starts to happen, you see strife. You see people in conflict with people. And the cause is one is trying to be more noticed than somebody else. That's original sin. 
thinking about ourselves, not thinking about other people, not being willing to give ourselves that other people in the cause of Christ might increase. I love what John the Baptist said. John 3.30. I need to decrease so that Christ might increase. Totally different way of looking at life. I'm not significant. I'm not important. If God would choose to use me, what a blessing. But it's not about me. It's about him and what he's doing through me. And John the Baptist understood that. He was a forerunner of Christ. He came to prepare the way for Jesus. He didn't come to be the way. And when you and I in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ humble ourselves and realize this isn't about us. It's about us saying, thank you for the grace you've shown me, and here I am, use me. And letting him use us any way he wants to use us. He uses the word jealousy. That's a tough word. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, you can't love somebody else if you're jealous of them. You can't love them with a sacrificial kind of love. You will not give yourself on their behalf if you're feeling jealousy because of them. So for us to be Christ-like, we need to deal with those kind of things if they're in our life. And if we feel strife, if we feel jealousy, if we have envy, we need to get off with the Lord and get that straightened out so that we might be the people he wants us to be. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes just before destruction. You know what that means? If we are filled with envy, if we are jealous of someone else and we in some manner are trying to one-up them or upstage them, God may bless the words that accurately come out of our mouth. But we're in tension with him. And something destructive happens. You can look at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ historically in our country and you can see churches that have been torn apart because the focus got off Jesus and got on people. The thing that makes the church a healthy church is when it's surrendered individually to the Lordship of Jesus and the church internally becomes strong but when we start struggling for a primary position and we want attention destruction's just around the corner oftentimes for us and oftentimes for the very church we love now here Paul is in jail saying those words to what is a pretty healthy church And I think he's saying, don't let that happen to your church because I've seen it in other churches. If you look on down to 19 and 20, you'll see that he talks about how providence is involved in exalting the Lord. In a very healthy way, our experience and the experience of all Christians ought to be to build God up and for him to be primary in our lives and in the lives of other people. 
And what Paul does is he says to the Philippians, you know, you all have been praying for me, and in addition to that, the Spirit of Jesus Christ has been ministering to me, and I know I am saved. I know I'm going to be delivered. I know I have a room set aside in that mansion in heaven. that apply to you? You see, you can not have it all right. You can have, not have it all worked out here, but you can have an absolute assurance that he's got it worked out and that he loves you. And in that love, there is this healing that takes place that prepares you for eternity with him. And he's got a room set aside for you with your name over the door. And one day... By his grace and his mercy, you're going to occupy that room. Let there be no question. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're destined for his presence for eternity. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying to the Philippians, I know I am delivered. I know I'm going to heaven. And every one of us as believers should strive to get to the point that we understand the gospel and how it applies to our life and how much God loves us and how that's our story and our testimony also. And then he goes on to say, my very life is exalting the Lord. Whether I live or whether I die, I'm going to exalt the Lord. Imagine that. Whether I live or whether I die. You know, it's an interesting thing. God doesn't need any of our abilities and doesn't need any of our spiritual gifts. Have you figured that out yet? I mean, he's got lots of substitutes for us, and if we don't get it done, he'll substitute for us like that. But he has bestowed gifts on us. He has bestowed talents on us. And he wants us to participate with him for our sake. And he promises to providentially work through us. Not that we get the glory, but that he gets it. When you start deflecting the glory that would come to you as a person, and you deflect it toward God, it will become obvious to you and to other people that you're not living for self, you're living for him. And providentially, He'll help that work out. And the amazing thing is, the more you do that, the more peace you have. The more you let the centerpiece be God, the more comfortable you are with where you are in life. And he'll bless you. And Paul says, not just in life, but also in death. This life does not end for us at a cemetery. It doesn't end for us, period. You and I are going to live forever. And the very fact that we're going to heaven exalts the name of Jesus. Mission accomplished. Amen? Amen. Folks, it's so beautiful what God's doing for us. 
and the way he loves us and the completeness of all of this. And he injects providence in our life over and over to keep it moving the way he wants it to move. What a God. And you know what he'd like for us now? To live for Jesus. It's that simple. For us to live for Jesus. And I pray that for you and I pray that for myself. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the words of Paul. I thank you for the reminder, dear God, that he was a man just like us, a man taxed and challenged and burdened just like us, a man sometimes falsely accused and sometimes by his own words, the chief of all sinners. But you've loved him. And your name has been exalted because he, in his life, lived for you. And because now in eternity, he abides with you. Thank you, dear Father, for the reminders you give us through Paul's life. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Good stuff. Isn't it good stuff? Imagine if we weren't in church and if we weren't exposed to the word of God, what we'd be missing we'd be trying to do it on our own. We'd be in a unique club of people who failed because that doesn't work. God loves us a bunch to have us here and to minister to us. God bless you, my friends, and God keep you. And may his face shine on you. And may you feel his peace and the warmth of his presence today and tomorrow and all the days of your life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.